I'm sitting behind the trunk of a fairly large palm tree to try and shelter from the wind that's blowing across the shallow sea behind me. I'm looking west. The sky is just gone from pink to purple and uh, the sun has just set behind the sand dunes of central uh, Arabia. And it's in this exact location, 105 years ago, in 1917, on November the 15th, that the explorer Harry St. John Philby um, came ashore uh, where I'm sitting right now. Welcome back to the Heart of Arabia Expedition podcast. If you've been following our earlier expedition podcast diaries, you'll know me by now. I'm Mark Evans. If you're new to the podcast, then I'm an explorer based in Scotland and Oman, and someone who's fascinated by the inspiring world around us, its people and its cultures. If you want to hear about the whole background to this expedition, then if you haven't heard it yet, I'd recommend you go back and listen to episode one, Journeying with Purpose. In this second of the longer form podcast, we're going to gather together some of the key moments from the first part of the trip and take some time to reflect on Philby, what we learn through journeying in his footsteps, and process some of our responses to the remarkable landscape and people of Saudi Arabia. Today is uh, day one of our expedition in the footsteps of uh, Harry Sinjin Philby, our Heart of Arabia expedition. And uh, my colleagues are now just along the beach. We're sorting out the campsite, our first campsite for the night, getting everything prepared to start walking, uh, walking west up into the up into the sand dunes tomorrow doesn't matter how long you plan it in this case we've been planning for four years the last two weeks of any expedition are, are utterly um, frenetic really you end up um, working pretty late and long hours packing all the vehicles securing all the food all the water all the fuels a lot of logistical work behind any expedition and ours has not been any different so whilst i sit under the behind the trunk of this date palm tree I do so in a state of absolute exhaustion I'm cream crackered really and uh, I, but on reflection I don't think I've started any other expedition in any other state so I am looking forward to uh, a good night's sleep tonight the fire has been lit then hopefully we should be able to uh, hit our sleeping bags fairly early um, so we can get a good start tomorrow Mark, can you reflect for me on the relief just to get going when you've been planning an expedition? What was that moment like when you put your head down and know that tomorrow everything begins? Oh, you know, every expedition I've ever done, you, you always start in this complete state of exhaustion because the work that goes into making it happen is so unrelentingly busy and it doesn't matter how early you start planning it never and however many, many expeditions you do it never gets any easier so so actually there's this is great excitement I, I'll, I'll use the analogy of a marathon all the, all the time throughout these podcasts but it's 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 the build-up to the marathon you know you, you probably don't have the best night's sleep you've ever had before it but but it's the adrenaline that keeps you going and that would be exactly the same in this very keen to start but really in desperate need of a, of a good night's sleep mm-hmm. 
Harry Sinjin Philby, uh, lecture to the Royal Geographical Society in London, 3rd of May 1920, across Arabia from the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea. And that is the journey that we're following out here. Uh, it's the second uh, day of our trip, really the first full day of walking in the footsteps of Sinjin Philby. And interesting reading the notes that he typed out before he lectured to the Royal Geographical Society. He was absolutely thorough on all of his lecture preparations. N the notes I have sitting uh, on my knee now as I watch the sun go down amongst the middle of some beautiful rolling white dunes here just inland from the east coast of Saudi Arabia are, are meticulously typed and, 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 and by the side of all of the written notes is, is, is a number to show the slide that he wishes to display which I presume was an old lantern slide and he wrote at length on November the 18th all was ready and with a caravan of 30 camels and 15 white asses of a large boned breed for which the region is famous. To say nothing of a motley human accompaniment of 17 persons, uh, we set our backs to the sea and launched into the desert. For the rest of that day and the whole of the next, we ploughed laboriously through a rolling sea of loose sand some 50 miles broad. And it's in the middle of those sands that we find ourselves tonight. Uh, I've been walking with Reem Philby, uh, granddaughter of, of the great explorer himself, and uh, we've covered quite a lot of ground, uh, about 16 kilometres on our first day. We didn't want to go too far. Uh, we weren't sure how soft the sand was. It, it was soft in patches, but, but the going underfoot wasn't, uh, wasn't too bad. And uh, with the sun on our backs, we ascended the line of dunes walking away from the sea like Philby did uh, in 1917. And here we are. Uh, we're in reasonable fettle. Um, today was really just a testing day, trekking poles. Are we carrying too much? Are we carrying enough water? Too much water? Um, but today's gone pretty well, really. Uh, Reem and I walk at um, pretty much the same pace and we're able to walk and talk, which is really important because Reem's a fascinating girl with a fascinating story to tell. Tell us a wee bit more about Reem and your time walking together, you must have had some fascinating conversations. Uh, well, we did. Um, we did have some fascinating conversations and we had plenty of time to talk. And, uh, and how often do you have the time every day to walk alongside someone for three hours and, and, and talk about all sorts of things and really get to know that person? And, and Reem was an absolute delight to travel with. And, uh, you know, A, we walked at pretty much the same pace um, but B, for me, Reem added such a level to our journey. Otherwise, it would have just been following Philby with a book. But, but we had a living Philby, the next generation of Philby. And, uh, and you know, one of the things I found fascinating was, was not just learning about Reem's life, but just learning about what it's like to live as, as the descendant of, a, of an incredibly famous person. And, uh, and the, the challenges and the benefits of that. So absolutely fascinating. Every day was different, but uh, every day was fascinating. If there's uh, a sound that is uh, synonymous with dawn in the desert, it's the call of the desert lark, which carries across the desert silence for miles, really. Um, 
But I'm not being uh, woken up to the sound of the desert lark this morning. I'm being woken to the sound of the bulbul. And uh, those of you who've ever spent any time in Arabia will know that the bulbul is the bird that first calls from the bushes. It's the first music that you hear uh, pretty much throughout entire Arabia. It's a beautiful bird. So this morning I'm being woken to the sound of the bulbul. Um, I'm not surrounded by sand for the first time in a few days. I'm surrounded by uh, incredible greenery because I'm in a place called the Al-Assa Oasis in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia. We were bang on Philby's trail yesterday using his diary notes. Um, we, were, we were absolutely on top of where he was walking 105 years ago. And in that same location, they lost one of their sheep to a wolf around the camp, despite the best efforts of a guard to uh, shoo the wolf away. But no wolves for us. Our camera trap um, the night before, the, 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 the bait, which was a half-eaten chicken, was completely removed. So we're looking forward to seeing what took that. But the end of yesterday, we, um, we entered the wonderful green oasis of Al-Assa. And that was Philby's first real stop of any significance on his journey in, um, in 1917. Uh, you know, it's, it's a place of two and a half million palm trees. It's where the water sort of geologically reaches the surface, which drains out of the central plateau. And it's always been an oasis. It's always been well known for its agricultural potential. When Philby um, arrived here, he, he, he described it as, as just a, a green barrier on the skyline ahead. And, uh, and the, joy, uh, the joy that they felt when they saw that green barrier. Um, it was a place also where he passed on to the next stage of his journey. And the march, his march over the dreary waterless steppe desert continued and ours will continue um, tomorrow but hitherto he wrote we had worn european clothes the inquisitiveness of the uh, hofuf crowds and the advice of our hosts decided us to adopt the graceful and i may say comfortable apparel of the arabs this change was effected and a suitable caravan collected we had to discard the donkeys owing to their inability to endure so long a march without water and before long we struck out into the desert, carrying with us goatskins, uh, with all the water that we should need for all purposes, drinking, cooking and washing for a march of five days, during which we would see no other. Later on today we're going to visit the heart of Hofuf, uh, because in the heart of Hofuf, Philby took some photographs of the souk, and some of the uh, buildings of significance, a couple of old mosques. So we're going to spend today uh, trying to find those those old mosques, which were so important uh, to him when he first came here in 1917. And we can compare new with old. But I'd just like to finish by reading the, the, the quote from Philby's notes where he spotted um, the oasis of Alassa. And he says, Towards the evening of the second day, we looked down from the last sand ridge onto the oasis of Alassa, the most flourishing spot in all desert Arabia. There is no God but God, exclaimed my companions one after another as they topped the rise to be met by the scene of fertility in the midst of the wilderness. A great black forest of palms with here and there a hamlet of mud huts over which hung a light pall of smoke between us and the setting sun.
it's, I think, Sunday, um, day five of our uh, Heart of Arabia expedition. If I look to my left, the sun is um, the sun is rising behind the dunes. hasn't quite broken the dunes yet. Lovely pink sky. It's the coldest morning of the expedition so far, down to a chilly 14 degrees, which is quite a drop from the high 30s, low to high 30s of the day. I woke up and had to throw another blanket over my sleeping bag. I'm just sleeping on the floor on a on a on a thin mat. Uh, that's my preference. I like it. It's very simple to roll up and get moving in the morning. But this morning was definitely a colder one. But the last two days have been nothing other than amazing, really, and fantastic uh, experience to really feel in the spirit of Philby. When we launched with Princess Anne in London, we were in the same building that he walked into umpteen times, the Royal Geographical Society. It was his second home. Um, but I didn't really feel connected to him there, but here I really, re really do. And when we explored the green lanes of the Alassa Oasis, we, we, we eventually found ourselves in the middle of of the town and exploring the famous old souk there, the Al Khamis souk, and we had a lovely old photograph taken by Philby in 1917 of all the animals outside and a lovely ornate building, and didn't take us long to uh, attract the attention of of a lot of the local people sitting around enjoying the evening, the cool of the evening, and we retrieved Philby's black and white photograph, and before long with the help of many people now quite a crowd had gathered we'd identified pretty much we thought where philby was when he took that photograph uh, in 1917 so that was uh, that was a lovely moment of connection wandering the old souk and then we moved on to the to find you know the probably the oldest building um several hundred years ago, well more than half a century year old uh, Ibrahim Palace, the old fort in the in the heart of Hofuf, uh, because it was here where Philby arrived in, in in 1917 to meet the dignitaries, to meet the Emir, and within the walls of that fort, which is in the process of being restored by the fantastic Heritage Commission here in Saudi Arabia, which does a great job of preserving Saudi Arabia's history. Within the walls of that fort is the Ibn Pasha. Uh, mosque, uh, an Ottoman mosque, um, with a with a beautiful dome and a, and a very ornate minaret, and and with a little bit of exploration, we were able to find, we think, the exact spot um, where Philby stood to take that photograph, and that 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 was a very moving moment actually, to especially for Reem, who, who that, you know that was her grandfather that, uh, that that was there, so she knelt and said a prayer at that exact spot, which is a very moving moment. My name is Reem Philby. I'm the granddaughter of Abdullah Philby. Uh, we are now in the empty quarter, and it's a beautiful starry night, really nice breeze, and we're uh, sitting by the campfire, just like how we have been wrapping up every day of our journey so far. I'm really enjoying my morning walks with Mark. We start just before um, sunrise, and we walk and talk and um, he's very generous with his knowledge and I've learned so much about my grandfather and about the desert during these walks and the evenings we sit around the campfire with um, the rest of the team and we enjoy nice conversation 
and it's been just great. Um, there were a few stops during this journey that had a different uh, feeling, especially for me. Um, one of them would be Al-Ahsa. Al-Ahsa was a really nice stop. The people, the locals that we met there were just really nice and generous and uh, spoke very highly about my grandfather and were very interested to learn more about our expedition. They really overwhelmed us with their generosity. We had a stop at the Ibrahim Palace there and that was one of the very first moments that I felt a deep connection to my grandfather as I was standing at almost exactly the same spot that he stood at when he took um, the famous photo of the Ibrahim Palace. And just being there and sensing his presence was um, truly, truly special. It was definitely one of the first moments that I felt his, uh, his presence and, and the deep connection to him. Another very special moment was when Mark and I reached this specific spot where the famous photo of people praying next to a tree was taken. So as we reached there, we were just looking around. We saw the tree and we looked at the rock formations behind it and we could clearly see that it was exactly the same spot that appeared in the black and white photo that we had. There was something very special about being in an exact spot where he was, just being in the desert that he crossed is special enough but to know that there are exact spots where he was and where he stood and took some photos uh, just has a different, a different feeling to it. So um, the least I could do there was just to perform a prayer and remember him. I find myself many times looking around this vast space and I just ask Mark, where do you think Philby came from when he reached this spot? And many a times he would say, probably the same direction that where, where we came from. And I can just imagine him sitting, writing down in his journal, or just resting a bit with his companions and camels uh, under any shade they find, just like what we do when the heat picks up, and we just try to find any shade that uh, will protect us from the, from the sun, and, um, and just rest for a bit there before we, we move on with our journey. As Reem mentioned, after al Hafuf we ventured out into the northern end of the empty court of the largest sand desert on earth. Although the main route of our Heart of Arabia expedition was following um, his 1917 journey, Philby spent many years of his life traveling and exploring and documenting this vast land. But the journey for which he was held in the greatest regard was his crossing of the empty quarter. Not south to north like those before him, but east to west, and that was a much harder route than that taken by Bertram Thomas. So one element of our expedition was to head off the 1917 route periodically and explore some of Philby's other significant landmarks. So we're halfway through the first leg of our Heart of Arabia expedition. And we wound the clock forward 15 years in Philby's life because what made Philby different from other desert explorers like Thesiger and Thomas was that he was a scholar of Arabia. He devoted his life to Arabia. And from that first meeting with Ibn Saud in 1917, um, he spent the rest of his life in Arabia until he passed away in Beirut in 1960. So we're heading south now to a waterhole, which was important in Philby's greatest journey. 
the, the journey for which he was awarded the Founders Medal by the Royal Geographical Society was his 1917 journey, on which we've been on the trail of for the last uh, six days. But we're now using our vehicles to drive a long, long way south into the northern end of the empty quarter to visit a really special place that Philby was the first European uh, to see. Um, I'm sitting, the noise you can hear is because we're now totally vehicle based. We've stopped walking. The camels are waiting for us a few days ahead when we cross the dunes, but I'm, I'm sitting now in a four-wheel drive. We're about 70 kilometers off the last blacktop road and we have a journey of a couple of hundred kilometers across open country until we reach our destination today and there's no guarantee that we will get there. We have sand shovels at the ready, sand ladders at the ready and I'm sitting in the car with Alan Morrissey who is expedition in charge of the expedition logistics. Alan's lived in Riyadh for 25 years and he knows this desert uh, better than almost everybody that I know uh, in Saudi Arabia. So Alan, you know, as you're driving now, you've got three vehicles behind you um, and you're heading into absolutely nothing. When, when we stood on top of the dune last night and did a 360, there was not a, not a single light in any direction. So, you know, what, what thought processes go through your mind when you're driving in country like this to, to help us get to where we want to be? So the main thing is ensuring that we keep on track, keep the schedule where we can, environment permitting, and uh, just keep everyone safe. Navigation isn't too difficult. We have the waypoints for the well that we're heading to this morning. And it's a case of finding a good track to that. The tracks are not too difficult to find. There has been vehicles in this area before, primarily Bedouin vehicles. Not sure why they're out there. It's a very bleak landscape. Small hills. I'd almost call them mounds and hills. Very gravelly. Not much sand at the moment, but we're coming towards the sand at the well area. Just keeping an eye on the GPS, making sure that our angle of direction is good. And uh, that we don't hit any unexpected mounds or bumps that might um, loosen our cargo at the back, packed up at the back supplies and things we don't lose anything off the side of the vehicles and then to keep everyone safe i'm sitting amongst a, an area of rock that is so light that it could possibly float on water if there were any uh, but there isn't any for um, a couple of hundred miles in any direction because I'm now deep deep in the empty quarter the biggest sand desert on earth and for the last two days we've traveled over 200 kilometers off-road to get to this particular location which was a real target of uh, of Harry Sinjin Philby Abdullah Philby when he did his journeys in 1931-32 uh, on his enormous crossing of the empty quarter the um there's a story in the Quran, the uh, holy book of Islam, about a king uh, called Ad who became so wealthy that his settlement, his city, this 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 fabled city of Ubar, and all of its inhabitants were destroyed um, by God. And 
Philby's Bedouin companions felt that they knew the location of this lost city of Ubar, and they were keen for Philby to see it, as was he to become the first European to see it. So this has been our target for the last few days, and we arrived here this morning after a couple of hours driving about 30 kilometres across some beautifully undulating sand. Um, and when Philby crested the dunes that tower above me now, he wrote that, you know, it was, it was a sight of disappointment. Um, he says, and now I was about to draw the veil uh, from the mysteries on which I had pondered so long with all the devotion of a pilgrim. I reached the summit of the dune and in that moment fathomed the legend of Ubar. He called it Wabar. A city destroyed by fire from heaven for the sins of its king. This may indeed be Ubar of which the Bedouins speak, but it is the work of God, not man. And Philby spent a, a day here, and, and we equally have spent a day here, because it's an absolutely fascinating site in a sea of sand. Uh, it's called, the Bedouin knew it as Al-Hadida, the place of the metal, because all around were fragments of incredibly heavy metal surrounded by this very light black rock which is lying at my feet right now. And when Phil, when when Philby looked down upon it, he, he didn't see the ruins of a city, but, but quickly leapt to the assumption that it was volcanic and that what he was looking at was black lava and, and volcanic craters. Being the person that he was, uh, constant um, fascination with gathering knowledge and data. He used his prismatic compass and his pacing to draw a map, to gather the data to draw a map of the site of Al-Hadida. The two main craters, several hundred metres across, were named Philby A, Philby B, and one of his Bedouin companions brought to him a rabbit-sized chunk of metal that was almost so heavy it was very, very difficult to pick up. Philby carried with him in his in his in his camel bag his, his saddle bag actually a, a geographical journal the magazine produced by the royal geographical society in london and sitting on the dune and pondering trying to work out what had created these enormous craters in the middle of this sand sea all around the land was black and and gray with ash he came across an article uh, written about meteorite craters in east africa and in his notes, he jotted down the word meteorite, uh, question mark. And when these metal fragments, some of these metal fragments were presented to the British Museum and, and the Smithsonian, the experts there quickly identified that what, what the Bedouin had led Philby to was in fact uh, a, a, an enormous meteorite crater. And it wasn't until the 1960s that, that, that a, a really scientific team came out to look at these craters. And they uh, very quickly identified this as one of the best preserved meteorite craters on the planet because most either plunge into the sea or into soil. But here, all of the impact was absorbed by sand. Um, the meteorite that hit the ground here was estimated to be over nine metres in diameter. That's about three times the length of your average car, two or three times the length of your average car. And it impacted the ground with 12 kilotons of energy. That is the pretty much the same as the Hiroshima nuclear bomb. And the plume of dust reached so high, it probably reached up into the, uh, up into the stratosphere. The heat and the shock waves turned the sand um, into liquid. And so these bl 
black glassy rocks at my at my feet were once sand uh, liquefied uh, by the impact of this incredible meteorite that came from outer space and it, it approached from the northwest at a speed 20 times the the speed faster than than a bullet coming out of a gun so it must have been an amazing sight uh, to see and and Philby was the first european to see this place um when he saw it in 1932, the craters were 12 metres deep. Uh, when some um, scientists and surveyors visited in 1961 on an expedition, and not many people come here, so there was a huge gap between visits, those craters were estimated to be 8 metres deep. And here we are today in 2022, and the craters are barely discernible, the drifting sand, but there's plenty of debris, plenty of ash to make to let us know we're in absolutely the right place. We can see the rim of the craters, but the craters themselves have been um, filled with uh, drifting sand. What was that time in the empty quarter like for you and the team, Mark? How do you think that would have been different to when Philby went there? Well, the empty quarter really hasn't changed. Uh, in fact, if it has changed, I would argue that it's probably even emptier today than it ever was, because when Philby crossed, those sands were full of tribal people grazing camels. Uh, there was no blacktop road. The, 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 the path which Philby followed was a, a way across the landscape flagged up by cairns on, on, on hills. Um, so the desert is still the desert. It's the, it's, it's the, the physical experience of the individuals is so different. Um, for Philby, it was hugely challenging, um, hugely challenging. His men would have killed him had they not been um, sent to protect him uh, in the name of the king because he was pushing them so hard. Uh, for us, it was remote, it was beautiful, um, not, a, not a tire track, not a footprint. Um, but the, the whole experience was, was just totally different. And that's 105 years of progress in technology. So we're now uh, at the end of day nine, the sun's setting to the west and a uh, lovely rosy sky as always. Um, and we're in a really good position to reconnect with that uh, 1917 line tomorrow, which we hope to do about midday. And then we'll start walking once again in the footsteps of Harry St. John Philby. One other thing, though, we did this morning before we left um, the meteorite crater was to take a photograph of a flag that we're carrying. And this flag is really important. It's the flag of, a, uh, of an incredibly um, distinguished organisation. There are three geographical exploration um, organizations that we're connected to as part of this journey one is of course the royal geographical society in london and it was the, of course that society uh, in 1920 that awarded, uh, awarded philby the uh, founders medal with the approval of king george for his great explorations of 1917 further north you have the fantastic royal scottish geographical society led so superbly by mike robinson a small organization that punches incredibly uh, above its weight and if you visit our expedition website you will see that we're trying to raise money for a young generation fund to uh, to give more young people in scotland more opportunities in the field of geography and exploration 
I think Mark is uh, he's obviously recreating a journey, so is there some of what he's doing is helping keep alive that inspirational original journey from Philby. But also I, th I think he's putting a modern context on it, he's putting a modern spin on it too. I think it's really important that um, young people are inspired about the world around them uh, and learn more about the world around them. I think it's an essential part of uh, growing up actually. But more than that, I think inspiration is really, it's, it's underestimated actually because it's not enough to know that things can be different or can be can be challenged. You actually need to believe and, and be inspired to try to, to do things and push limits and try things and try new things and learn. And I think inspiration is a really critical part of that. And so the other thing we're very conscious of being 138 years old as a charity is that inspiration lasts a lifetime. It's not something that happens once it stays with you and and whole generations are brought up on what inspires us is very different for every one of us but but you know we still talk about some of the great inspirational role models from 100 150 years ago they still impact and inspire people today and and, and help them to challenge themselves so uh, we believe very strongly in the need for inspiring young people the inspiration really for the fund very much came out of the principle that I think all of us accept that we should hand the the earth over in a better state than we inherited it. We all want the best for our children and grandchildren. And I think it's really important, therefore, that, that we keep that spirit alive. But at the moment, there's an awful lot of um, bad news in the media and a lot of existential crises. And it's causing a lot of anxiety, a lot of concern, a lot of grief in different spaces. And we wanted to try to help both tackle some of those things in a meaningful way, give young people more of an opportunity to engage in some of these things that matter to them so much, and also physically inject hope and, uh, and, and inspiration through actually providing money and funding for some of the activities that we felt young people should be undertaking. So the intention is to try to really you know walk the walk in terms of um you know handing the planet over in a better state than we inherited it by both influencing change um bringing about improvements in various ways mentoring young people and giving them opportunities so we wanted to create a fund that allowed all of those things to happen obviously mark is um very uh, keen on all of those things he's uh, done huge amounts of work with young people and and inspiration and everything else and I think he also buys that idea that we we absolutely need to hand things over in better state than we currently have them. So he was very keen to use the expedition to highlight the Future Generations Fund and the work that we are trying to do in Scotland and just encourage people to make donations who are moved by what he's doing in his journey uh, to make donations into that fund so that we can help do more of it. Philby was due to lecture twice to the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, but on both occasions, sadly, got called back to the Middle East um, to uh, to do work on behalf on behalf of the British government or, or, or Ibn Saud. But the flag we photographed this morning did not belong to either of those two organisations. It belongs to the Explorers Club of New York, and it was in 1930 that the Explorers Club stated that that outside of Antarctica, it was the the empty wastes of Central Arabia that presented the next great challenge. So we carry the flag 
of the Explorers Club with us and we carry flag number 112. So we're very honoured to carry flag 112. The first expedition this flag went on was in 1944. So that's about 78 years, if my maths is right, it's about se this flag we're carrying is about 78 years old and it's not awarded to everyone. And it says on the... Um, the, the the document that accompanies the flag when it's couriered to you before your expedition it says the explorers club flag is a symbol of courage and fidelity the award of the flag is a, is a significant accomplishment since 1918 the flag has been carried to all of the earth's continents as well as under the sea and into the stars to date 850 explorers have carried the flag on over 1450 expeditions the flag expeditions further the club's purposes to broaden man's knowledge of all phases of the universe. And at the end of this expedition, we have to produce a report that goes to the Explorers Club, and that club that, that report will help further disseminate the new knowledge that we gather, part of the science work that we do. And it's that acquiring of new knowledge that really would have resonated well with Philby. Um, and it's the acquisition of new knowledge according to the explorers club that distinguishes the scientific explorer from the adventurer or treasure hunter acquisition of knowledge is in my mind what differentiates an expedition from an adventure and acquiring knowledge and the ability to tell stories through images has been an important element of our expedition anna maria pavalasha is superb at this and was our expedition photographer, capturing not just our recreations of Philby's original photographs, but our own expedition too. Partway through the first leg, I managed to persuade Anna to put down her camera and to take up my microphone. What a journey and so much to share. Mark asked me to do this podcast, but I have to be honest, I'm more comfortable behind the camera. Everything was new to me. The country, the environment, the desert being used with the mountains, even the camera that I was using, the people around me. And slowly, I realized that you, you get so fast, so familiar with everything. And your body, your physical body, it connects right away with the environment and with the surroundings and with the people, the Saudi people, the team members of the expedition. The camera offered me also the opportunity to concentrate in looking at different landscape. I used also the drone that provide us a completely different perspective when we look at the crater, for example. And another perspective, when we went back and we saw that tree where Philby stopped, maybe the only tree that one where, where one person can find shade in the middle of the desert. And the chance to film those, I felt that I was almost part of the environment, of, of the landscape. And that's very powerful. And not to say I had the chance also to take a couple of night photography and we were lucky to have 
the new moon that gave us the possibility to see so many constellations and shooting stars and I could photograph the Milky Way. And even if it sounds like it's the same, but for the last four nights I photographed the Milky Way and it's such a immersive experience of patience, of stillness. As you sit there and for one single photo you will wait for 60 or 90 seconds and even more. And that's the beauty. When you feel that the sky is so close to you and to have to, to, to photograph that, I, th I think it's incredible because it brings back memory and one can share with the other ones what we experience and what we've seen. I wonder what you learnt, Mark, about Saudi Arabia, about this expedition, when you looked at it through Anna's images, which many of us will have seen too. Oh, that's a great question. Um, do you know, I, I probably didn't learn anything new about Saudi Arabia and the expedition through Anna's images, but what I learned, because I, I could see what she could see through my eyes, what I learned was the difference between a picture and an image and and just how how blind I am and how relatively and how creative she is. Uh, I mean, it was one of the top, top photog expedition photographers in the UK, Martin Hartley, who recommended Anna to me as someone who had this unique talent of telling stories through images. And, and I'd say what I, you know, to try and answer your question, I, what I learned was the difference between a picture and an image. Um, I can take a picture with my iPhone. I can't take an image that tells a story. I don't have that creative eye that Anna is absolutely blessed with. Um, but for those of you that maybe missed the images or want to see them and, 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 and take a little bit more time to appreciate them. There will be an exhibition of some of Anna's fantastic um, artwork and images alongside some of Philby's originals at the Royal Geographical Society in London in October, um, along with uh, a, a, an expedition lecture. But if you can't wait till then, take a look at the Heart of Arabia Instagram account to see some of her work. After our trip into the empty quarter, we headed north again to rejoin Philby's 1917 route. A relentless and very windy, I recall, journey we made in vehicles, but one that Philby made on camels. He commented how exhausted he was by this point, and I can completely empathise with that. Saudi Arabia is utterly vast. It is about 10 times the size of the UK, and made up of three main deserts. In the northwest, the, the Nafud Desert. In the south and southeast, the biggest sand desert on earth, the empty quarter or the Rubal Khali. But connecting the two is a thin ribbon of sand like an umbilical cord called the Dakhna Dunes. And we are now on Philby's line, uh, on the east side of those dunes there. They vary from between 30 to 60 kilometers in width and tomorrow our challenge is to cross those dunes to meet someone who's waiting for us hopefully with a few camels so that we can uh, we can use some camels on 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 this leg of the journey 
And it was interesting because we reconnected with Philby's route at that at the famous tree that we visited a few days ago where he took a photograph of his men praying in the afternoon uh, a sun as the sun was setting and uh, and when Philby pushed on from there he described the terrain as a, as 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 a as a completely empty featureless plateau um, with here and there cairns of stones loosely set upon knolls that serve as beacons to the wandering Bedou or travellers and we've been following those rocky uh, cairns this afternoon steadily west until we were virtually running out of daylight we stopped about 20 minutes before sunset and uh, we've set up camp amongst some uh, undulating dunes on a little shingle uh, a little shingle plain uh, which will be our home for the night the fire is lit um, the food is cooking we may get some flour and try and bake some Bedouin bread on the embers of the fire a little bit later on but uh, I suspect everyone will turn into their beds quite early tonight after a very very long day and Philby must have um, been exhausted every day bouncing around on camels at this stage he was about four days from meeting the man he was travelling to meet Ibn Saud. So we'll talk more about that in the next uh, in the in the next podcast in the next couple of nights. We'll hear more about Philby's meeting with Ibn Saud uh, and the immediate chemistry between them and and how that relationship developed in the next episode of the Heart of Arabia Expedition podcast because it's fascinating. And then suddenly there was this shadow in the corner, which he hadn't seen. And this very tall man came over to greet him. And they began to talk. Over 10 days in Riyadh, they spent 34 hours with Ibn Saud. And straight away, Philby and Ibn Saud saw eye to eye. He saw straight away what Ibn Saud's vision was. And he was a man who could share his vision that the Arabs should be eventually go towards a self-determination. And so he spent a number of hours grilling uh, Philby about what was going on, what were the British thinking, what was happening in Iraq, what was happening in Britain, what was happening in the rest of the world, what was likely to happen in the war, where things were going. And they really bonded over that. You know, Philby saw that curious nature and that intellectual spark that King Abdulaziz had, and I think he hadn't seen much of that um, in, in the heartland of Arabia. Most uh, people, in, in, while incredibly hospitable and welcoming, were not that open to discussion in, in Central Arabia. And he found a very different character in Abdulaziz. So go and click subscribe and follow the podcast so you don't miss the next steps of our expedition as we continue the journey to Riyadh and then on to Jeddah. If you've been enjoying the Heart of Arabia expedition podcasts, please do share them so other people can find them more easily. The Heart of Arabia Expedition podcast is an adventurous audio production.